friends, it's Cara, your host and salonier, as they'd say in 18th century France. And we are in Le Vital Core Salon. And this is where you get to meet impactful women sharing how they navigate bullshit and sidestep burnout. Today's guest is Eileen Uchatel, and she's a staff software engineer on the Ruby Architecture team at GitHub and a member of the Rails core team. And if you're wondering what on earth that means, Eileen and I have you covered. We'll break it down for you so you have some context about who she is and what she's doing. But don't sweat it, because we're going to tackle so much more than ones and zeros if you're a non-tech person. Think of this episode as some mental spring cleaning on the work front, where Eileen and I are going to chat about managing distractions, so things like social media and email, and some of the disadvantages and advantages of working remotely. Plus, we're going to talk about problem solving and sticking tenaciously with the tedious, invisible things. There's lots to cover and lots of practical advice that you can apply to your own work in this episode. I think you're really going to dig it. And if you think of someone while you're listening that might dig this episode too, please don't forget to share it with them. Voila, the conversation with Eileen. Thanks for being here. I know you're a busy woman. And let's see, by day, you are a staff software engineer at GitHub now, but you weren't always. So how did you make the jump from studying art and photography? I think I'm going to first, for the audience, explain like what GitHub is and what a staff engineer is, because I feel like they might <laughs> not know, uh, depending on who's fair listening. Fair enough, fair enough. There's definitely some tech folks in this crowd, but there's a lot that might hear coding and GitHub and think, what the hell is going on here? So yeah, that's a great place to start. I work at GitHub. I like to think of GitHub as the Google Docs of code, uh, but it's probably a bit cooler than that. It's definitely cooler than that. It's a platform for programmers to share their code, collaborate with team members or anyone in the world, and... We have most of the open source repositories in the world. Uh, open source means code that anyone can change, not you know without oversight, but you don't have to pay a license to change the code. You can see all of the source code. It's not some secret uh, society where, I don't know, <laughs> you have to be a special person to see it. Well, so, this is a funny parallel, but is it kind of akin to Wikipedia for the non-tech minded? Yes, kind of like that. Yeah. That's what open source is like Wikipedia. And I mean, it's mostly used by programmers, but not just for programmers. Our, we had, our legal team started using it for things that are uh, very public law. So IP agreements or, uh, so, or other sorts of contracts that like everybody needs and everybody uses. They started putting them on GitHub so that you could actually track all the changes that were happening. Oh, very cool. I don't think I realized there were non-development applications to it. Yeah, I mean, it's mostly for code, but other folks have found ways to, to use it for non-code reasons, which is pretty cool. Nice. So how long have you been there? I've been at GitHub for three years. Uh, I just had my three-year anniversary on the 10th of January. Congrats. Thank you. I have been on the same team for three years, though we ch keep changing our name. 
You know, I saw that when I was getting ready for this interview and I was wondering, like, are those different roles or is it the same work, but everything keeps getting restructured internally? Yeah, we've been doing the same work. It's just different names and it's fine. It's just the the nature of working at a company that's changing a lot and everyone's trying to figure out what the best roles for everyone are and where the teams belong. So we've been in infrastructure and product and a different org and now we're back in infrastructure and none of the stuff that we do has changed. So it's totally fine. (laughs) Okay. So what does your day look like? What are you working on? What are you touching? Is it all code or is it something else? I work on an open source framework called Ruby on Rails. Uh, Rails is the web framework that GitHub, Kickstarter, Ravelry, Shopify, and many other websites are built on. Twitter was actually originally built on Rails, but they've since rewritten in Scala and a bunch of other stuff. One of the really cool things I like about Rails is we aim to make web development fun uh, by doing all the boring parts for you. So every web application needs a database. So we just make it easy to set up a database. We don't like torture you by making you have to do that over and over again when it's exactly the same every time. Got it. So if someone is like looking to build a database, they can go to GitHub and they can go in and pull all of the code that makes a database that someone's already done and people have kind of vetted. Yeah. Okay. I'm with you. And hopefully the audience still is too. We're keeping it pretty basic. So. Yeah. So I work. So one of the things I do, regardless of where I work, I used to work at Basecamp. I did the same thing. Now I work at GitHub doing this. I work on the Rails framework so that it benefits the company that I work for. So for GitHub, I, when I started working here, I looked at, I said, wow, we're like really far behind on our Rails version. So the first thing that I did when I started was upgrade us from Rails 3.2, which at the time was uh, like eight years old, to Rails 5.2, uh, and then to now we're on 6. And this is important, not just because like version numbers don't mean anything to most people, but each version number means that it's more resilient, uh, there's less bugs, there's better features. And one of the things that we look at is now that we're on an upgraded version is saying, well, what's all of the stuff that we wrote in GitHub that should be just done in Rails? Like Rails should do for it. So how Rails does the databases, what else have we written that Rails should just do? And so I look at our code and say, okay, we don't need to write this ourselves. Every single application, needs to have parallel testing, which means you can run multiple tests at the same time with multiple computer workers. So say we look at that, we say we built that ourselves, so, and we don't need it. So let's just, we do need it, but we don't need to have it in our app. So then we take it out, we put it in Rails, and then we delete our version. And we do that over and over again, looking for all the places in which we wrote code that we should never have written in the app itself. Uh, I refer to it as infrastructure code. It's code that you need to make your app run, but it's not code that makes people buy your app, right? Like, so nobody uses GitHub because we have lots of cool parallel testing. (laughs) They use it because they can share code. So anything that isn't about sharing code shouldn't be in the application. So this sounds like a digital or infrastructure version of like cleaning your closet, but on a massive scale and like a million times over. Yeah. Clean out your closets. Because <laughs> what is the scale that we're talking about? Like how many of these kinds of like projects are you juggling in a, you know, in a given week, a given month or a given year? I'm not sure even what the right interval yeah. is. 
It depends on which it is. I've been working on the same project for two years where we wrote, and this is where I don't want to get, like I use parallel testing because I think it's an easier concept to grasp. But one of the things that we did right is we had a lot of database infrastructure into our app for using what's called like multiple databases. So I can have 10 different databases that have 10 different kinds of data and each of those can have what's called a replica. And that's where you copy the data. So it makes the data, getting the data out of the database faster. And Rails didn't support that. We wrote all this code to support it in our app. And so I've been very slowly, <laughs> I think of it as like turning little knobs, just changing little things for the course over the course of two years to get rid of 75 to 80% of our infrastructure code for this one feature. And I like, I'm almost done. <laughs> Whoa, that's a huge project. Yeah. So some things are really small where it's like, oh, I can write this in a day or a week. And some of it's like, okay, I have to have like a really long term vision for what this is going to look like. And that can take a lot of, it can be kind of frustrating, but also, you know, when you finally get to that point where you're like, I did it, <laughs> it feels really good. I'm curious because I'm not a software engineer in any way, shape or form. Like I bumbled through what little like HTML and CSS I needed to do as a prerequisite for a UX design immersive. And that's pretty much where like that stands for me. Like I can sort of read some of it and I can see patterns in the logic, but definitely not an engineer by any stretch of the imagination. How much of like, say, again, I don't know if it's an average week or month, are you looking at like big picture, like strategic priorities versus like doing these like smaller, like, okay, I've just got to write code for the next day or two to get it to do, you know, 5% of this cleanup or 10% of this cleanup for me. Does that question make sense? Yeah, I think it's less specific than that. I, I don't like I never really think about how much time it takes to do any of those things. Usually I'll like I'll be working on something and I'll see a problem and you know, I really need to fix this or I'll make a note to fix it later. If it's <laughs> it just goes on the massive queue. <laughs> yeah. For me it's it's mostly if it's a, if I'm having a bad week, I will look for little things to fix. Um, that's just like writing quick code. That's like not super, uh, difficult. And I'll just be like, I know that I know I have this little problem. I'll just solve it so that it's out of my way and I don't have to think about it. And I can feel accomplished. I would say probably 70% of my time is spent writing code, probably 15% like figuring out what's next or some, I don't really want to call it project management, but like planning architecture and planning. And then the rest of it is spent reviewing other people's code uh, and making sure that they're making the right decisions and helping them if they need help. Our team at GitHub, which is called Ruby Architecture, is we have a lot of experts in Rails and Ruby. Uh, so Ruby is the programming language that Rails was built on. Rails is a framework. They just sort of like sit on top of each other. Or Rails sort of sit, just sits on top of Rail, uh, Ruby. And like it's hard to explain, but kind of uh, if anybody who's listening knows WordPress, uh, WordPress is a CMS. Under that, it's using a framework. I actually don't know which one. And then under that is the language PHP. 
So it's just sort of Got a it. stack that you go up. Like you wouldn't want to write, you wouldn't want to write your blog <laughs> in raw PHP because then you're going to have to do a lot of extra work. You get to use WordPress. It makes things easier. Rails is kind of like, it makes things easier, but not as easy as WordPress because it's not an actual application. You build, you basically could build WordPress with Rails, but no one has. So uh, <laughs> that's a really long-winded way of explaining how languages work. But we have a lot of experts on our team, so we're sought after a lot for advice about how to build certain things in GitHub, uh, how to make sure that those things that they're building don't cause incidents or how to fix bugs. And so I'm like definitely wrong about the amount of time that we spend helping other people when I <laughs> did my percentage. It's probably closer to like 50% of writing code and like 30% helping other teams and whatever else I said, the architecture and design and planning is like 10% maybe. Got it. Um, it sort of happens at the same time. You know, you start working on a problem and you're like, okay, this problem has revealed a whole rabbit hole of other stuff that I didn't even think of. And then a lot of the times I'll take those things and be like, okay, each of these things needs to be fixed. And then um, sometimes it's really like ad hoc where I just keep it in my brain. And like recently one of my coworkers and I who are working on a very hard thing made a project so we can actually track the work that we're doing. Cause otherwise we just, we kept like both had lists like paper lists that we kept losing of the stuff that we were, <laughs> that we wanted to do next. And this was all on Rails, so it's all open source work. There's no like requirement to actually have like a project to track it, but we just got tired of, of forgetting what was blocked and what wasn't. Um, and it's actually made it a lot easier. I, we should have done that sooner. <laughs> and that's what usually happens. It's like, you think a project is simple, you start it, <laughs> and then you realize like halfway through that you really should have done a bit more planning. I'm laughing when you say like, yeah, you sometimes think a project is simple because I feel like it, whether it was me like as a health and lifestyle strategist working with individual women or it's me now sort of moving into UX and service design, I love when clients have always said like, oh, so I just want to work on this this one thing. And it's one, it's usually like never the thing that really needs to be worked on. And yeah. it's and then it's never ever as like just that one thing as anyone ever thinks. There's always, you know, five interconnected problems and like it's running on uh, um, different platforms and different spheres and affects different departments cross-functionally. It just gets so complicated so fast. So like I think the thing I've taken away from life at this point is no problem is ever simple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a farce. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's almost never simple. So when you bump up against a problem, is that exciting to you? Is that stressful to you? Like, do you dig problems as much as I do? Yeah, it depends on the problem. Uh, <laughs> uh, I like hard, challenging problems that aren't tedious. Uh, so that, that like line can get very blurry in programming where you're like, oh, I think I know what the cause of this is. And you start down the path and then you end up in this loop of just trying to figure out what's wrong. And sometimes you're not getting any of the data that you need or, or what you thought was, was wrong. Uh, it doesn't turn out to be, <laughs> uh, doesn't turn out to be the problem at all. And then you end up going down this rabbit hole and, you're like, all I wanted to do was fix this tiny thing and now it's 
four weeks later and I'm still fixing something totally that seems unrelated, but that ends up not being. It's kind of like when you're wearing a sweater and it's like, you, you're like, oh, I just need to like tug this little thread off and then like an inch of your sweater unravels. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or like when the Titanic hit that iceberg. Yeah. <laughs> true, 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 true. I imagine well, some of the problems you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I want to ask, I know like most people have this stereotype of people who are programmers or software engineers that like they are just robotic and don't talk to people and they're just like tapping away with headphones on. But I'm hearing then that like a huge chunk of your day is like reviewing work of other people. Like what's the human element like in your work week? Uh, well, I think that's one of the misconceptions is that I definitely prefer to be able to just like put my head down and code and not have to be bothered. Just the whole point of like getting into flow, you can't get into a flow of writing code or even, and I think that anyone who does creative work can understand what that, what that is, is when you're just so focused on your work that you forget what time it is and you're not, you know, checking Facebook every six seconds whatever else is going on in your life and you just focus on the thing that you're doing. And that is very valuable in engineering. And I think that that has turned into like a stereotype that's a little bit unfair because like, of course you want to be able to concentrate, but there's so much of any job that you can't just ignore the rest of the world. You know, we have to review each other's code. We have lots of meetings. Uh, you got to talk about what kind of decisions you're going to make and what issues you think you're going to hit. And I work remotely, so I don't have the same human interaction that, I, that folks have in the office. So we have an office in San Francisco and one in Amsterdam. I definitely prefer being at home than to being in an office. That doesn't make me like, a, <laughs> I don't talk to people. People are weird. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I definitely, like the office environment is definitely a little bit like, because it can be loud and it can be harder to get into a flow if you're in an office, for me at least. But What, what helps yeah. you get into a flow state? I think it's so important for women listening to hear different perspectives on like how to get there. Because there is no denying what you've described as the flow state is totally important for people, especially if you're doing any sort of creative work, which I would consider this creative in its own way. Yeah, uh, I like to turn off things like Slack and stop myself from going on whatever social media platform exists. Uh, whichever one I feel like, Twitter is probably my big one. Uh, I don't, I try not to use Facebook, but it's there. And, uh, you know, Instagram, because everybody likes to look at dog pictures. Uh, <laughs> Says a doggy mama. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but having like having time set aside that you are just like I'm not not gonna I'm not gonna look at this stuff, but I'm gonna turn off Slack or whatever your chat program is or whatever it is that people can use to bother you while you're trying to get work done. And like the other thing I do is I try to like check off all the boring stuff in the morning, like anything that's like gonna block me from getting things done the rest of the day. Like I always just check my email first. I you know check to make sure there's no new bugs that I need to take care of immediately or 
whatever, and sort of just use that to organize the rest of my day. I'm weirdly organized and unorganized at the same time. Like I've used like mail to write lists a lot, like the back of junk mail envelopes. But then I also actually have a planner and like a digital calendar that reminds me of meetings and stuff. So I usually have a good idea the night before or the next or the more like right early in the morning of what I have to get done that day. And as long as I can get all like that silly stuff, like I have to file expenses and these people are waiting on I mean, people waiting on a response for you is not silly, but expenses are like, can you just file yourself? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no one likes as a, as a CPA for like more than a decade, I worked a lot in like early stage startups where I had to get people where it was like the wild west and there were absolutely like no financial processes in place to like starting to put in those processes. And I can tell you implementing the time and expense processes was the biggest, worst headache for any startup I ever worked for. It was so painful for people and then you know, multiply like the pain each person was experiencing, you know, times the number of employees. And that was what it felt like for me. Yeah. yeah <laughs> everyone yeah. hates it. Everyone hates you for making them do it, but everyone wants their money. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, we use Expensify and it's not, it's not the worst way of filing expenses. Like I remember one of my first jobs, I had to file expenses in a spreadsheet. So like, and it's like, how do I attach images to this? Like, this is silly. Uh, so <laughs> Expensify is great compared to that. But yeah, it's just one of those things that you're, you're like, this is a waste. I mean, it's not a waste of my time because I want my money, but it's also... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a value add in any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I try to do all of that stuff in the morning so that it's not like in my mind space. Uh, and I just be like, okay, you're done. Or if I feel like some days I feel like I just don't plan well and I... I forget to take lunch or like not really forget to take lunch, but I'm like, Oh, let me just finish this one thing. And then four hours goes by uh, because someone asked for something else and whatever. And you're just trying to get stuff done on those days. If I feel like that's happening too much, I'll make myself like a very strict schedule where I actually have reminders that tell me like when to do stuff until I get back on like a normal, on a normal schedule um, just because it's healthier. And I think it's easier in like a remote environment to sort of just forget how important it is to, like take the proper breaks and leave at the proper time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think as as much as I practice trying to have my shit together most of the time in terms of basic self-care and like taking just literally like checking the boxes on the basics every day, I totally resonate with and and I had this happen like 2 weeks ago where I was like, "Ooh, I need to block out time tomorrow afternoon to like look at my calendar for the next month and either like dump some stuff or move some stuff and make some space because it wasn't until I was talking to somebody at like 4 p.m. on like a Thursday afternoon where they were like, oh, I forgot to eat today. And then I realized I totally forgot to completely eat since breakfast as well. And I didn't even realize I hadn't done it which yeah. is so not like me most of the time. So like that was a, a big trigger for me. It was like, oops, time to refocus, time to reprioritize, time to come up with a plan. 
So it sounds like planning is also something that kind of helps hold everything together for you as much as it does for me. And you mentioned something interesting in terms of a lot of planning is done for you like the day before. Like you're not waking up and like, ah, what do I need to get done today? Maybe you're sort of checking in, but like, what does your process look like the night before? And like, what can women listening take from that if they're feeling like they're not very organized? Uh, So I actually usually plan my week as much as possible the Friday before. So I try to not leave Friday on Friday before I've written what I need to do the next week. Uh, I used to like have a notebook that I just would draw, like I would create like blocks in the notebook pages and it would be like what I need to do this week. We have less now. We used to have a lot of contractors on our team and I needed to keep track of the work they were doing. So I'd like write a list of all the stuff they were working on. Then I would write a list of all my meetings and then all personal stuff that was blocking. Uh, I got really annoyed with having to like draw that out every week. <laughs> so for, for Christmas, I got like an ink, ink and volt. I had a, my husband for those listening, uh, got an ink and volt planner, which sort of, uh, I don't, it does some stuff I don't, like I'm not really a big fan of, uh, when you look and you're like, what would I like to accomplish this year? I'm like, I don't know. It's January 1st and I have no idea. So like, let's move on. <laughs> so you're on a week, you're on a week to week basis yeah, is what I'm yeah. hearing. I'm, yeah. So it's like, yes, I probably have like a vague year, five year, 10 year plan, but I don't like really want to write it down. I don't like believe in new year's resolutions. Uh, I mean, not like I don't believe that people can make them. I just personally don't enjoy that. Uh, I usually find that September is when I introspect my life. I th- Why September? I think it's because it's like ingrained in me the school year, but also like winter's cold. I'm not making any promises when it's this cold out. <laughs> <laughs> Set on a day that started at eight degrees. <laughs> yeah. Uh, someone, someone on my team the other, like, yesterday said it was five degrees and they said five, five is a dinner reservation, not a temperature. <laughs> <laughs> that was very funny. It's probably time for them to move south. <laughs> oh, they live in Florida. They were making fun of me. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. It is for me to move south. <laughs> but yeah, the, the Ink and Volt thing then has like your week, your weekly outlook. So basically like a calendar, but just for the week. And then they've got the month uh, calendar. And then they have weekly pages where you just like can write down all the stuff that you need to work on and or whatever. And it's got like a whole section for reflections, but I just use that for lists. And so it's, <laughs> yeah. So I, I basically like all of the stuff that's like supposed to be like self improvement. I just use as like, this is for work and it's not really for like, it's to keep me organized, not to like write a diary. Um, and I think that like, if someone wants to use it for that, like it's totally perfect for that too, but it can, it can be changed into like what you actually need it for. And so I I really like that for figuring out like, what am I going to do next week? So I don't forget something that's really important. When I I started doing that last year in January and it wasn't even because I felt like I was losing track or distracted or whatever. I just would like write stuff all over the place and I needed one place to keep it so that when I do like my self-performance reviews, I can actually remember what I did without having to look in 15 different places so it's really helpful for that, but also just for like keeping me focused and, and knowing like how busy of a week do I have? And sometimes that changes over the course of the week. Really usually, yeah. So it's like, usually I do Friday, I just fill out for Monday and then each 
day before I leave work, I just look and I'm like, what do I have tomorrow? Great. Okay. So in terms of planning, I feel like this crowd is filled with overachievers who overstuff their schedule and are like running constantly. When you're looking at either like your next week on a Friday or you're looking even just at like your next day, do you leave white space or like how are you scheduling yourself and like kind of how do you think about it? So I don't have too many meetings, which is great. Uh, And I hate meetings. Uh, I don't mind like having one-on-ones with people and like having conversations and having meetings that are really important, but I like really don't like meetings where it's like, why are we here? This could have been an email. Um, (laughs) I don't think you're alone in that, in that world. Yeah. Which thankfully doesn't happen to me a lot at all. So that's really good. And, and I actually look at like, there's a couple of recurring meetings on my calendar, which I consistently just decline. Uh, (laughs) And it's not because like, I don't respect those meetings It's because some of them are like, you only go to this meeting if you were involved in what we call incidents. So that's like if the database goes down or the app goes down or like people couldn't log in, something major that affects the customer base. So I decline that meeting often just because like if there were no incidents that week, I don't need to go. If I wasn't involved, I usually don't need to go. It's also in the middle of the day on Thursday. It's like at 11. Usually I want to eat. So... (laughs) Uh, You're like, unless my hair is not on fire or it affects one of my projects, I'm not going. I'm going yeah. to eat. And I mean, it's a really, it's a really cool meeting and I like to go occasionally. It's just, it's like one of those meetings where if you're feeling like stressed that week, that's a great meeting to just be like, you know what? I don't need to go to this. And I do that a lot. Like I'll just look at my week and be like, I don't need to have these meetings and I'll just move them or cancel them. Uh, especially if I'm really busy. And I have a couple of standing meetings with coworkers of mine where we work together on stuff. And those are the kinds of meetings where I can be like, hey, my week is totally crazy. I'm sorry, but I got to move this. And we're just, we'll just do it next week. And it's not like a big deal. There's almost never, those are almost never meetings that can't be moved just because you're busy. And I think that that's like one of the things that uh, folks, they feel like they have to like take every meeting and have to do everything and that they can't say no. And I think it's really important to like always look at the stuff that's on your schedule and say, you know what, I don't have to do this and I'm not going to. And not like in a like throw your hands up kind of way, but in a, I have a life <laughs> and I really got to get some other stuff done. And like freeing yourself of that responsibility of having to always say yes is really important. Was that easy for you to come to? Like, are you naturally good at saying no to things or was that something you had to learn over time? Yeah, no, I am really bad at saying no, but I got to a point where like, I just ran out of time. I can't say yes to everything. And so like now my, and this doesn't, this doesn't, this doesn't count for work stuff for anything that someone asks me to do outside of work, speak at a conference, do a podcast, go talk to a bunch of kids or something, whatever they ask me to do. I always (laughs) ask myself, do I actually want to do this? And if I hesitate at all, like there's any like, I don't want to do this. I just say no. And like most of, the, most of the people I say no to, I'm like, well, you can't see my calendar. So even if like I'm actually free on that day, there's no. Yeah, don't, you don't, you don't, ob- <laughs> like you're not obligated to use time just because it's open, right? Yeah, yeah. And a lot of times like I'll say no, it's like, oh yes, I could squeeze that. But like, 
yeah, you want me to go to this conference, but it's bookended by a conference two weeks before that in Europe. I'm not going to fly to Europe twice and I'm not going to stay there for a month. So sorry. Like, yeah, I don't, I'll like say, Oh, I don't have, I'm busy that week. And it's more of just like, I'm actually like, just, I will only do like one conference a month. Uh, and so for the audience, we didn't touch on this, but I speak at a fair amount of conferences, uh, usually between five and six a year. And it would be more if I didn't just say no a lot. And I don't say, it's not even just like, oh, I don't want to go there or I don't like the organizers or like, I don't like this conference. Sometimes I really like them, but just the idea of flying to Europe twice in a month is just like not exciting to me. So a lot of times I'll just say no because I feel like, hey, I, I like my house <laughs> and I want to see my dog and my husband and I want to do things at home. One time I traveled so much in October, I like missed fall and it made me really sad because I like fall a lot. Oh, I don't, don't want to miss stuff. So I try to like only say yes to things that I actually really want to do. That's so important. I love that if like you have any hesitation, like you're using that to help guide you. Like was this, you know, it reminds me of the Derek Sivers post that everyone like always passes around. That's like, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no, or yeah. maybe it's a hell yeah. I forget. It's really important. Like honoring that twinge, right? Like, it's not like this, it's not like you sat there and were like mulling it over for an hour, but it's like, just like intuitively feeling that like pause. And it's like, that's enough of a trigger for you to just be like, nope, not the best use of my time and energy right now. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I do mull it over for a while. I'll be like, oh, I got to respond to that email. Oh, I don't know if I want to go to that conference. And they're like, this, this feeling of like, I don't know if I want to go. That's the part. That's when I'm like, okay, I actually probably don't, <laughs> don't yeah, want to go. It's probably, uh, it's not a hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not a hell yeah. It's like, oh, now I have to write an email and that's what I don't want to do. <laughs> and those are the things you can't say no to, right? Like you can say, no, I don't want to do this conference. Or like, no, I don't want to go to this event or no, I don't want to go to this meeting. But you can't be like, no, I don't want to send that email to tell them I don't want to go. So. It's so funny. Like I used to always like feel that guilt. And then I'm also, I guess like I approach things a little bit different. Like I say no to like a million things almost instantly. And if someone puts pressure on me, it's like, forget it. Like, cause I, like if people present me with something, I'm usually like, okay, I'm going to take a night of sleep to think about it. Cause sleep is where I do some of my finest work, I think. Yeah. <laughs> if weird as that may sound, I feel like just having a good night of rest and like kind of like letting my subconscious and just letting it click away in the background overnight, like usually will help me make a clearer decision the next day. And so I feel like usually I'm like, well, give me like 24 to 48 hours to think about it. And I never usually want to procrastinate because I, I hate that feeling that like you're describing where it's like, I keep seeing something in my inbox for like three or four weeks. And I'm like, why didn't I just say no to this? So I try to like keep myself from getting into that whole loop. But then at the same time, I feel like when people put pressure on me to like give them an answer fast, I'm like, okay, well, if you're going to pressure me, my answer is no. <laughs> like, I don't even need to consider the rest of the details if, like, I'm being pressured into something. Yeah, yeah, those, I, that's very annoying. <laughs> people it's People just, tough. like, can't give you, like, a minute. 
but yeah, I mean, that's like definitely like not usually the experience that I'm having with conference organizers. I mean, they do have to like get their lineup done. And if I'm going to say no, they need to ask someone else. But um, yeah, I think when I reframed it as like the sooner I, the sooner I just deliver the no, like one, I don't have to wrestle with it myself. And then it's like, I feel like that notice is such a gift to the other person. Yeah. Right. Where you're like, hey, conference organizers, I'm not the right fit for you. It's not the right timing or I just don't want to do it here. Now you have all this extra time to find the right person. Yeah. I think <laughs> that, that like that instinct comes from the like not wanting to send the email is like the part of me that doesn't want to disappoint someone. But yeah. like, yo, you're not alone. But yeah. <laughs> I also was just like, like, I think it's like kind of like filing expenses. Like the, it's like, well, I've made the decision and I wish like the email would just send itself. <laughs> like oh, I've already spent the money I wish the expenses will file themselves uh it's like the little details of stuff that you you like don't want to do like the other day like I really wanted a haircut but like just didn't want to make the phone call <laughs> to schedule the haircut it was just like torture to get myself to like actually schedule it and it's like funny how we can't like doing the little things is sometimes harder than doing the like hard things I just saw a meme just this morning. I think it was like the need to know email, which is just like a, you know, morning news digest of what happened the day before. And they always have like some sort of funny tweet or like meme at the bottom. And it was just a tweet from, I don't even know who this person was. And it was like, yeah, I just took 11 minutes to finish the task that I've thought about for like three and a half months. Yeah. yeah. I think I've seen that one. Yeah. And then I think they described it as the story of me. <laughs> yeah. The story of all of us. Uh, yeah. It's hard. Like, There's a lot of incoming too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the other thing, like people who really want to answer right away, like all they can see is the email that they sent you that you didn't respond to, but like, they don't see like the 75 other emails that you're also ignoring. <laughs> Yeah. You know, what's interesting too, is like booking this podcast, there's definitely been, right. Like I'm constantly like reaching out to people. Like I see what they're up to and I'm like, Ooh, they seem like they'd be interesting to talk to and have lessons for us to learn and then kind of reach out and don't hear anything. And then it's so funny. Cause like there have been people that have surprised me. Like for example, when I spoke to Patty, who is an air traffic controller, the FAA has this like whole rule. So they can't just like say yes, right? Like they have to clear it like through this whole big, long, complicated governmental food chain. And so, you know, there are times where it's like, you know, I've reached out like a month later or so and just like, hey, just checking in, you know, did you get the email? Is this something that's even interesting to you? And like, I find out like, you know, they've had three phone calls and filled out two forms and are kind of like nudging, nudging this whole thing through the process so that they can just even give me a yes or a no. So it's funny, like when you start having like a different perspective on things to your point, it's like they don't see the 70 other emails that you're looking at or the 19 projects you're involved in or the work or the life and like just all the basics, like a haircut that need to get done. Yeah. And like there's so often where you're like, well, at least I try to like not go back on the computer after work. Uh, and I do this by going to the gym at five, like exactly at five every day. Not every day, most days. And it helps me stop working 
but then I'll be like, oh, there's an email I really wanted to answer. <laughs> and I hate writing emails on my phone. I know that some people love to do that, but I... Yeah, I'm with you. I can't. For some reason, I'm always worried there's going to be like something in the email that I like pasted accidentally and I didn't <laughs> see because my screen is too small. <laughs> and then I'll just send something that I didn't mean to send or like it's like harder to read the email that was sent while you're trying to write an email. It's easier. I just prefer to write emails on my computer, but then I don't want to unlock my computer because then I'll see the work email and all the other stuff. Uh, and I don't have any self-control once it's open. So I try not to check the, or write things. I don't try not to like respond to emails because then I have to like open all of the ones that are unread. Oh, because you'll go down the well. Yeah, and then they'll like keep me up at night because I'll be like, oh, I, this, I don't think this person's solving this problem the right way, and like I don't want to spend five hours answering them right now. But I also really, really wish I hadn't read that email. And it's like I would be much better at solving this problem tomorrow morning. I'd so much rather like not read it, read the problems that I need to deal with, like don't need to deal with tonight, like right now. If I had better self control, or like Google would just like hide emails for me that weren't important. Well, do you do I the mean, pause? Do you have you used the pause function at all? No, I haven't. Maybe I should try that. It sounds like it could be somewhere in the ballpark of like the itch you're trying to scratch. But I, I've been only in the past like month or so, like experimenting with it a little bit where it's like, you know, giving myself maybe an hour to catch up on email, especially if I'm behind. I try not to do it first thing, but I'm trying to figure out like where in my day to put it. I wish it could all just go away, um, but that's not a reality. And so I'm still like playing like, should I carve out time in the middle of the day? Should I car like just put like a structured focused hour on it? Like at the beginning of the day, should I handle it at the end instead of just like kind of going back to it a bit and not, mm -hmm. you know, like batching the work better. I used to, I feel like I was much better at that. And it's been changing, but that pause function is kind of interesting because you can just be like, great, don't serve me any new email until, you know, either the next morning or three hours from now. And it's been, it's been kind of nice because like, even if you like find yourself like going back to it, which I forget the statistic I heard recently, it was like people check their email. I can't remember, but I remember having like that like a pang in my stomach hit where I was like, that number is so gross. Yeah. I wish I could find it and remember it. It's kind of helpful to just like, that way if you do drift back to the tab, there's nothing there to check. <laughs> I gotta figure it out. <laughs> the problem is I have like three or four different email addresses. <laughs> oh yeah. So then you get to cycle through them. Yeah. So wait, tell me more about this. Like, pencils down off to the gym at at 5 p.m. How did that come into play? I do Muay Thai at the Stockade Gym uh, in Kingston and class starts at 5. So <laughs> if <laughs> I'm late then I can't go to class. So if this was just like oh I would oh, I should go to the gym at 5 like it would never happen. It has to be like someone has to like expect me to be there and then I'm just like okay I need to go. This is important. I have to go to the gym. Sorry, see ya. So I usually go three days a week during the week and one weekend day. Um, so Friday, it's easy to walk away from the computer at five because it's like beer o'clock at five. Um, 
And since most, like a lot of the company is in San Francisco or West Coast, and I don't know if you've ever worked with people on the West Coast, but like I swear they stop working at like two on Fridays. It's just like crickets <laughs> at that point. It's so been it's, years, but I would totally agree. Like when I was working for PwC, we'd be like, where is the LA office? Like, where is that partner? And it was 9 p.m. for us on a weeknight. And we're like, wait, they're gone? What? <laughs> yeah. Everybody works lots of hours, gets all their stuff done. But you know, we have like a really good uh, work-life balance. And we don't want people working more than 40 hours. So I'm sure like it just makes it easier for me to leave at five on Fridays. Because I'm like, all right, I'm you were there anyway. So see ya. So three days during the week. And there's probably like there's one day where I don't go to the gym. It's usually a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And those days like occasionally bleed a little bit over five, but it's gotten to the point where it's just so ingrained in that like stop at five that it doesn't like bleed into like seven or eight. Uh, I usually get hungry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the only reason it bleeds into 530 is because I'm like, I just want to finish this one thing and I don't have to like leave right now. Um, but I'm pretty good, pretty good at it. Also right now it gets dark at five. So that's a pretty good indicator that it's time to stop working. Nice. I am so impressed because I feel like the turning the day off is something that is definitely challenging for me. So hearing this, like, I'm just thinking, wow, <laughs> like, maybe I just need to like schedule myself for something where someone expects me like every night. Yeah. And I've been like, how long have I been remote? I've been remote seven years. This is my third remote company. And so I definitely had much worse habits when I first started, developed them over time. And it's, I think it's a little bit easier. For, uh, I know a lot of folks that do like remote, uh, not remote, um, freelance, or they work for themselves. And they're always like, I don't understand how you do it. And I think there is a big difference between having other people who are working with you. I don't get, I was like 2000 people now. So it's never, I'm just alone. And that helps a lot with the loneliness factor of remote work. Uh, but also with, hey, there's how many people on my team? There's five, three or four people on my team that are West Coast. It's like, I don't want to work. Like, I can't finish this. You got three more hours of your work day. Like, you want to take this from me? Uh, and that helps a lot, too, because I don't have to, like, feel like I have to stay late to finish something if it's, like, really serious. Although that doesn't usually happen. We don't, the, my team usually works on, like, harder back-end problems that are not customer-facing. So, we don't have the same kinds of deadlines as like a feature team. Got it. There's not as many eyeballs on what you're doing. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's for better or worse <laughs> customers don't usually notice if like we deleted a bunch of code that we should never had in the first place. Maybe they'll notice it runs slightly faster, but they won't actually. Um, it's a sort of interesting doing invisible work because it could be like when you do your job well, uh, nobody should notice. <laughs> And then if you do your job poorly or you have like, not even poorly is like not the right way to put it. Like nobody does a poor job, but like if you do, if you like miss something and you're like, Oh, I had no idea this was going to happen. And like you take that, the website down, like while you're trying to do something that no one was supposed to notice, then everybody notices, but for the wrong reason. Uh, so like I talked in the beginning about the rails upgrade and we did that without like with no zero downtime, which is without, any downtime or customer impact, which is almost unheard of. Usually an upgrade causes some kind of issue. <laughs> and it's like, nobody noticed because it doesn't change the customer experience, but it changes the experience for 
our engineers who are developing code. So like, of course they notice cause it's better, but the world doesn't notice unless you tell them. And it's Got just it. those sort of like interesting things where you do your job. Well, nobody should know that you upgraded rails, but <laughs> if you, if you take down the site, then everybody's going to know. Cause then you have to write a postmortem and say, Hey, we took down the site because we upgraded rails <laughs> and that's terrible. So it's just, it's sort of like, I don't know how I got on this tangent, but invisible work is a really interesting uh, part of programming that I think that a lot of times we don't talk a lot about or think about because everyone's like, hey, Facebook changed my UI. Like, where's the button to add a friend? I don't know. <laughs> if they upgraded uh, PHP, I think they're on PHP. But I think they have like their own custom PHP. But if they upgraded that, like nobody would ever know. <laughs> So this is going to sound maybe like a strange question. Maybe I should give you a little bit of context for it. I know something Kelly Lingard and I talked about. Kelly interviewed me on this podcast because she felt like, and there were a lot of other people that like had questions and said, when are you going to answer our questions? And so mm -hmm. Kelly interviewed me. And one of the things that kind of came up was this idea of invisible work. Because I feel like for the last 10 years, I'd been working privately with women, right? Like around things like diet and rest and exercise and stress management and social relationships and juggling all of those. And it was like, you know, I realized a lot of the women that were hiring me were paying for discretion. So I was kind of like working with these women behind the scenes, but often couldn't even say or acknowledge that I was working with them in any way, shape, or form to other human beings. Mm -hmm. And then we were basically getting into the weeds of like, what is the problem you're coming with? And is that really the problem? And then trying to come up with a strategic plan to turn it around, right? Mm -hmm. And it was always invisible, Right. Because like when anyone was like, what are you doing? I could just say like, oh, I work with clients around these things. But I couldn't actually really talk about unless I had like explicit permission from people and in very, very veiled terms to be able to talk about invisible work. So I guess like it makes me think, how do you measure success for yourself when the work is invisible? That's a good question. Um, if I look back at all the work that I've done over the, like in my programming career, a lot of it is invisible work. It's the kind of work I don't like it because it's invisible. I like it because it's hard. And oftentimes it's, it's stuff that gets ignored, like not, not ignored, but it's problems that people are like, Oh, I don't have time to work on that. Or like this feature needs to go out and that's, what's important. And when there's these other like nitty gritty problems that need to be solved and they can be like icebergs, which can be cool. Icebergs can be cool, but they can also be like terrible. So uh, I, I like figuring out what kinds of problems those are and how they work. And for measuring the success part of it, I usually feel successful if I finished it or learned something. And I don't really believe in like anything that's not successful, uh, which is sort of like a weird way to think about things. Like people always be like, I'm afraid of failing. And my attitude is like, you literally can't there's very few permanent things in life like death as permanent. Very permanent. Very, very permanent. Uh, yeah. I mean, you could like, lose relationships with people, but that's not necessarily permanent either. And sometimes it's for the better anyway. 
but there's like, there's very few permanent things where if you try to build that startup and it doesn't work out, like, sure, it didn't work out, but that's not permanent. Like you're not dead. Uh, it might be hard. I'm not like, I'm not like saying well, your life didn't get more difficult or whatever, but you learned a lot from it. And maybe your next time will be really successful. Or maybe you figured out like during that time, like, well, maybe I'm not good at running a company, but I'm really good at mentoring people. And then you go do that. Uh, so I don't believe in like really permanent failure. So I, most of the time measure success by like, if I think what I did makes it better, right? So deleting all of this, like moving all of this infrastructure code for databases out of GitHub and into Rails, uh, it's been really hard. There are times where I thought like, shit, I can't finish this. Like I don't actually, like this is a mess. I didn't create this mess. Why am I cleaning up this mess? This is silly. <laughs> like <laughs> I need to go to something else in my life. And in those cases, I would always find someone who like, believed in that mission to get them to like help me so that I could get out of the shitty mind space of, if I can't do this. And it's really important to have those people in your life. Be like, get me out of the shitty mind space, please. The other, and then like, for me, it's not like the hard part isn't measuring the success myself. It's convincing other people that it's important and successful. And I learned at a couple jobs ago that I just have to constantly write about the work that I'm doing. I think a lot of times when you're doing invisible work, People want it to stay invisible because they're afraid if they make it visible that somebody will find a flaw with it or they'll be like, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. Or, well, I expected you to have these results and you didn't. But if you hide the work that you're doing, especially if it's invisible, then no one's ever going to know what you're doing and they're not going to realize how important it is. So every time I do something that's hard, I just write a post about it. Like everybody at work, read this post about this thing. <laughs> I actually when you push code to the, to, we call it production. So that's like the, you know, anytime you're using a web app, like Google docs or whatever, that's production. It's called deploying code. So I actually deployed code the other day that did not do what I wanted it to do. And I still wrote a post about it and like what I learned from it, because I think it's important for the other people on teams to be like, Oh wow. Yeah. We like, that's wild that we weren't using that code properly. And thanks, Eileen, for finding it. And if I never talked about it, no one would ever know that, like, why did I spend four weeks doing this thing? It's simple because I found out that somehow it had been done wrong years ago. And we've been living in this sort of, like, not perfect, not perfect. We've been living in this web app world that isn't benefiting us. And we could actually, like, write the code better and it would benefit us. But I had to deploy the incorrect fix to find the ways in which it wasn't working right. And I never would have found that otherwise. So that to me feels really brave. And maybe it's because I feel like I'm a recovering perfectionist, right? Like that is something I'm always trying to manage on the regular. Do you think that's specific to tech? Because like sort of moving from what I was doing into UX design, I've been like really fascinated with like the amount of medium articles that people are posting. Like I would never think to write about something even when it goes well, never mind like, oh, I was working with the client and this came up and I chose this method and it was a total bust and here's why and here's what I learned. But like that's like a thing in the tech world, right? Yeah. I think partially because... It depends on like which community. I think the Rails and Ruby communities are like very open and like very into 
like learning from other mistakes and like not trying to make the same mistakes again, but being totally like, yeah, I've been there. I dropped a database in production. Sorry. Like, yeah, it happens. Let's do it better next time. I wouldn't call it blameless, but it's definitely like, Hey, I've been there and I get it kind of vibe. I think that like, that's the tech industry I think is really into sharing because of like not wanting other people to live through like shitty experiences that they've already lived through (laughs) once. But also because I think so much of it is invisible work and it's hard for, sometimes I find it hard to, like I love all of my non, like my friends who don't work in tech, but they can't necessarily understand some of the stuff that like we deal with and are going through. And it's probably the same for like, I'm sure accountants have their accountant friends who are like, Wow, and doctors like, and yeah, I mean, like, lawyers, yeah, name it. Like they changed the tax law, damn it. And like if someone talked to me about that, I'd be like, cool. I don't have an appreciation <laughs> for this problem, but like, sorry that happened to you. And I, I think that's like one of the reasons why we share so much, especially like the tech industry like really uh, embraced Twitter when it started. And I don't know why, but like still has. And I love Twitter. <laughs> uh and I think that like that, like Twitter like, promotes wanting to share stuff. Like sometimes I write really important professional stuff. And sometimes I write jokes about like, what did I write earlier? Uh, oh, I actually made a joke about not being able to get like, like being able to speak in front of hundreds of thousands of people at conferences, but like being unable to pick up the phone to like call. To make a haircut. To make a haircut appointment. <laughs> like, why is this so hard? Uh, I'll like tweet other stuff. Like I, right now I'm, I'm going to Italy in... April to speak at a conference and I don't need to know how to speak Italian to go. This is something I find really interesting is like challenging yourself on things that you've internalized that you can't do. So I realized that I had internalized like that I cannot learn another language, that I cannot learn how to speak a foreign language. I don't know where this came from. I mean, actually I do. It came from like really poor foreign language education <laughs> in this country, but I like internalize this. Like I cannot learn another language. And so right now I'm challenging myself to learn like just enough Italian to like have a very basic conversation and on yeah and so I'll ask questions on Twitter like explain to me like this weird like Italian thing that I don't understand so like how you can say you in like three different ways like te t two and it's like when do I use which one like I don't understand uh and so I'll use Twitter for stuff like that like and it's just it's funny because it's the plot, like my most public platform, but also the one I'm most honest on. Whereas like Facebook, I just like refuse to post. Like, I don't even think I shared my Facebook with you because I was like, no one needs to see this. <laughs> There's nothing here. It's, it's, There's no it's, point. It's crickets. It's like literally a barren wasteland in which I delete, like a, a couple months ago, I deleted everything um, or most of the stuff. Like I deleted all my albums and whatever because I was like, I'm going to eventually leave Facebook and I just want to like start deleting stuff. And the only thing that I've said in the last three years is to complain about Kingston's recycling program. So. <laughs> so what is it about Twitter that makes you so drawn to it? Uh, well, it's definitely gotten like less fun just with all the like angry people. But when you like can ignore them, I think it's just, I've met like a lot of my friends in tech, I've met them on Twitter. And I met them in real life too, but I found them on Twitter and they were like helpful or were just like, oh, try this or I'm going to this conference, like looking forward to meeting you. And it's just something that there's something weirdly open about it. Yeah. It's like hard to describe and I don't understand like how Twitter was successful at accomplishing that. 
That's what I like. I like Twitter. <laughs> I hope it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> I can't like always figure out like I feel like it's you can get right to people, but there's so much like noise and static in between sometimes. Like I haven't yeah. figured out it's never felt like there was any flow for me on Twitter. Yeah, I I really don't like threads. I think that they are done poorly. Uh so I just prefer I mostly prefer to like read like one offs. People are like saying funny things or oh hey, like I wrote this blog post about this thing you might be interested in. Here's this experience I had. Well yeah, I mean Twitter has a lot of noise and I think like there's different ways to reduce it by just like not following literally everybody or muting hashtags and muting people. Like I I'm an aggressive muter. If you tweet too much, I will mute you. <laughs> I just, like, you can't take over my timeline. Like that, that, I need to see other stuff besides whatever you're on about. But yeah, I mean, I, so I used to have like my DMs open and I like had to close them because people were like in totally nicely, like asking for too much. I think we were like talk, maybe talked about this a little bit, like not, asking for one thing and then not realizing you had like 75,000 other emails. And it got to the point where I felt like I was a help support a little bit where they're like, Oh, I don't know how to use this thing in rails. Like, can you help me? And it's like, yeah, I can, but also I have a job and like a million things to do. So I actually can't help you even though, you know, uh, I really want to, but if I answered all 20 people in here, I would never get anything done besides answering all of you. And that's not part of my job. So I ended up closing them, not because anyone did anything inappropriate, which is amazing because Twitter is full of inappropriate people. Yeah, I was going to say uh, on the level of, of shitstorm on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. And also for anyone listening, that is not an invitation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was mostly just like, I can't deal with this. Like I had a lot going on at the time and, and I actively tried to like reduce the amount of noise in my life, uh, like by closing, like closing my DMs on Twitter at work in like Slack, like leaving channels that I don't care about. Like, not, I don't care about any of you, but, oh, this is just too distracting. And oh, usually they're like fun channels where people are like, let's talk about being left-handed. And I'm like, I don't have time for this. Uh, and it's great that all of you do. That's a really bad example, but we do have a lefties channel, which I actually think I have. <laughs> I actually haven't left because it's very quiet because there's not a lot of lefties. Uh, and there's also like, how much are you going to talk about as a left-handed person? Yeah. I mean, beyond the like needing to strategically pick your seat at a dinner party, that kind of thing. Yeah. There's probably not as much day to day, but maybe oh. I'm just thinking about that from like my, you know, right-handed view of the world. Well, you know, we've all learned to live in a right-handed scissors world. So, <laughs> so I think, you know, in, in terms of talking about social media, like, and people, right? I was watching some of your talks and to be honest, some of them went right over my head and I had to switch to another. I saw you talk about vulnerability, especially like as it relates to open communities. What have you learned from those sort of like online pockets of people? I think that I learned to communicate like really clearly and really well there's so many people in open source that they're from all over the world. Like English might not be their first language. And one of the things that's like really interesting in open source is a lot of times maintainers. Uh, so I'm just going to give a quick vocabulary rundown. Maintainers are the people who run the project. So on like the Rails core team, we have 12 people. Uh, the core team is kind of like a board. 
if you want to think about it like in a non sort of tech term, except it's not as like official as like having terms and got it bylaws and whatever. It's like you're all 12 volunteers who did a certain amount of work where the creator of Rails was like, hey, I want you on this team. So it's that kind of thing. Uh, okay. Most projects only have one maintainer, sometimes maybe two. Uh, having 12 is not a lot of people for the amount of issues we get, but a lot for an open source project. So, you know, we like decide what features go in, what bugs get fixed, if something actually is a bug, because sometimes bugs are features, blah, 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 all that stuff. And so in that case, where was like, oh, and that's, so we have maintainers, I'm doing a vocab lesson, uh, maintainers, and then what we call contributors. And that's anyone who is contributing changes. Um, they might be just opening an issue to report a bug. They might actually make changes. Uh, it might just be like some back and forth discussion. Uh, they might review the changes. They might try them out, that kind of stuff. Um, but they don't like make contributors don't get to decide what goes in. They just can try to get something into the code base. Maintainers decide what actually goes in. Uh, and it's important to have this structure because otherwise like literally anybody could change code and then you don't know if it's safe. So that's why you have to have, some group, one or two or more people who make sure that all of the changes going in are not like nefarious. Uh, Got it. Like, so they're trustworthy. Yeah. They work correctly. Like just basic compliance issues. Yeah. And so in like maintainers burn out a lot because it, usually the maintainer to contributor ratio is really high. Uh, you know, just like today, I think we got like, 10 new issues on Rails and that's actually a slow day. And that's like not counting all of the people who are commenting and the pull request, like, and the changes and the, like the back and forth and all of that. And, uh, you know, it could be hundreds of notifications a day just for that one project. So and there are 12 maintainers. You're talking yeah. about say a dozen bugs or issues that came out today in a community of hundreds how many of thousands of contributors? Probably hundreds of thousands. I don't know. I don't even know how many people have Rails applications in the world. Like it, that's the thing is like, there's no way to measure it. We can like say, oh, these, this number of people, I think it's like 5,000 are watching the project, but that doesn't, that doesn't count all the people. Like I don't, I don't watch it because I don't want emails. Uh, watch it. Sorry. I should clarify. Watch, watching a project means that you get an email for every single notification, but most people have that turned off. So it's like, you can't even you can't even track like how many people are actually using Rails, and you sort of have this like funnel of like you've got the smallest, uh, maybe it's more like a pyramid. The smallest top of the pyramid is the maintainers, and then you've got the contributors, and underneath that is all the users who aren't even reporting bugs. And any of those oh, users could become contributors if they hit an issue. A lot of times, like maintainers will burn out because of that contributor maintainer ratio is like not good. Because is it fraught with like emotion and bullshit as well yeah i mean sometimes people come into your projects and they just like talk shit and you're like i don't have time for this <laughs> <laughs> like you're just stirring the pot like, for no like, reason i'm not i'm not paid to yell that by you what i like to do with open source and that i've learned this from just like working on lots of open source and different projects and seeing how different people deal with conflict is that like as a maintainer you have the most power you could literally shut it all down tomorrow. <laughs> and, and I think that like being able to recognize that power that you have, like that you don't have to accept any changes, uh, that you also can be an asshole, that you 
also like that the contributor is also stressed out and has a hard time and doesn't understand the code as well as you do. Trying to put yourself in like that position can make open source a lot easier. It doesn't excuse the people who come into your project and are like really mean, but I find that if I try to diffuse them with like, Hey, you're like being a jerk. Like I get that it's hard. I'm not here trying to ruin your day. The most of the time, like 99% of the time they'll apologize. And like, they're not trying to be a, like a person who's ruining your day. Uh, everyone, every once in a while there's 1% and then you just block them. You're done. So it sounds like you're giving them a little bit of an empathy jolt. Like, Hey, I get yeah. it. It sucks to be in your shoes right now. I get this. But at the same time, like, I don't have to take your abuse. Yeah. And like, I can't fix anything if you're yelling at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The longer I'm doing damage control with you, the less something is getting fixed. Right. Yeah. And like, sometimes they're just like, they're wrong. But I, that's why like, I've, I've learned a lot, like, in, to just sort of focus on what I can control. And if I think, like, if I focus on, well, I have the power here, so I should be nicer. The other person doesn't have any power. The contributors don't have any power. I mean, they have some power, but like being a maintainer means you have, like you ch decide what code goes in, you decide what bugs get fixed, you decide like when the next release is going out. And it can be really hard to like take that like influx of abuse, which is why for all open source maintainers out there, I recommend like just shutting your notifications down as much as possible because it's just much better that way. And then you can just focus on the problems that you actually need to work on, but reminding yourself that like you have the power and act like it. Well, yeah. And you can use that power for good or you can use it for evil. And what I'm intuiting, maybe I'm not hearing it in words, but I think it's important for people listening is like pain and powerlessness can make people act really shitty. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, we all know when we have no control of a situation and it's spinning out of control or we're in pain, it's so easy to be a crank and just like yeah. miserable to deal with. So although you didn't say it in words, I, I think it sounds like you're recognizing it yeah, and, and acting accordingly. Yeah, I've definitely been there. I've been like very frustrated with stuff. I mean, like, why is, and I've pissed people off too. And then, you know, like not necessarily an open source. Like, I try not to respond to stuff if I'm mad. Uh, I try to like wait till the next morning when I'm still mad, but like not fuming. But like, I've definitely like a few weeks ago, I was like really sick, had the flu and like CVS didn't have my insurance even though I've been going to the same CVS for like five years and I was just like I can't deal with this like just fix the insurance and I was like not nice about it but and I, I feel still feel bad about it but I was so cranky and sick and was just like mad that this like seriously <laughs> the insurance like you don't have my insurance I've had the same insurance for three years <laughs> oh yeah it's it's hard in that moment I feel like so I volunteer as a mediator in and around the Kingston courts and hopefully after March starting to do some child and visitation rights stuff too. But it's so funny, like in those moments, like I see people that would probably seem like nice, normal, 
kind individuals. And then there's something about like when they walk into court and then when they get into the mediation room that it's just like, oh my God, what, where are we? Like what alternate universe is this? And it's, it's really hard to see people acting in that way. And then also sometimes like be on the receiving end. And like you just described, I'm sure they walk out the door and are thinking, gee, I wish I handled that a little differently. Yeah. So have you ever burned out? I'm definitely, I think I'm definitely burned out, but I also think I'm pretty good at recognizing the, the point, like the symptoms that I have and like the point that I'm getting to and being really honest with my managers, uh, being like, I can't do this work anymore. or I can't do this by myself anymore or something has to change. I don't, I don't think I've never like hardcore burned out. Like people who are like, ah, I hate programming. I want to go like be a goat farmer now. Um, and I hope to not get there. Although that's my like joke profession where I tell people I'm going to quit programming. I tell them I'm be, you're going to be a goat farmer. Goat farmer. And, like, I don't know why. Cause I think goats are like kind of freaky with their eyes. They're like, they yeah. also are total hooligans. Yeah. But I really like goat cheese. So I don't know, maybe I'll get something out of it. I've never like burned out to that point, but I think like a lot of times when I do burn out, I just change jobs because I just want something different to do. I think that like I started to, the the database project that I was working on, I think I started to like hate working on it for a little bit. And the way I like, got around that was by just like working with other people on it, um, which we talked about earlier, just being like, hey, let's work on this project together so I don't have to do it by myself. And that sort of like is really motivating to one, like ex- like have some, like explain to someone else what your vision is and like have them get it so that you don't feel like you're just totally like riding off into the sunset, like on a horse and being like, see ya, I'll be back in 10 years with a solution. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think like if you start to burn out, like working with other people or just like changing your job or changing something, I think a lot of times burnout comes from like not having a good work-life balance or like not having a good schedule. Uh, so like, that's why when I start to feel like I'm not sleeping or something else is going on or like really stressed out, I'll just make like really strict schedule for myself. I'll take a vacation. I like vacation or like, I'll just work on something else and be like, I had to table this for a while and I will find something else to work on. Giving myself permission to take off early on a Friday. Love that. Uh, and that doesn't solve burnout, but it does make you feel a little better. Yeah, but I mean, sometimes you do have to just, like, back away from stuff, right? Yeah, and, like, that comes back to, like, the failure thing. Like, just because you stop working on something for a period of time doesn't, like, make it a failure because you can always go back. It's not permanent, and taking a break for a couple weeks is really important, especially, you know, letting your brain relax, and maybe you'll, like, wake up in the middle of the night and be like, I've solved it, which I love. Sometimes I solve problems in my sleep, and it's great. Um, Oh, hundred percent. Like, so like in the early part of my career, I used to make financial models, right? So like some executive would say, what if we did this? And I would have to go track down all the assumptions and then like make a complex model in Excel. And it took me a while to realize, but it's like, I could stay at work until two in the morning trying to find, you know, the one formula that is like making an error run through like 20 different tabs. Or, and I wish I learned this faster than I actually did, or I could go home, go to sleep, and either I would wake up in the middle of the night with an answer. It's like, oh, it's the fourth tab. 
cell E5. I bet it's that formula. And, you know, would immediately come to me or it would come to me in the shower because I slept. Yeah. Like when you take your mind off something and like back up and get into that diffuse thinking mode, it's a powerful thing. Yeah. Sometimes I just take a shower in the middle of the day, which is like one of my favorite things about working from home is you can be like, a shower will probably help me think. Oh, or, or a walk. Better at least. Yeah. And so like take a walk, take a shower. I don't know. And you're like, great. I've solved it. Or at least you feel better and like clean. Being clean is nice. Uh, Sharon Rowe, who's the founder of Eco Bags, was on the podcast, and she literally always talks about just get, getting up and getting a glass of water. That sometimes, even in just like that small amount of time it takes you to go stand and have a glass of water, is enough time for it to like kind of lock into place. Yeah. And sometimes, one of the, I one time was trying to figure out a bug, and this is really funny because like I would not walk away from it. And eventually I just got frustrated to walk away. And it turned out to be a timing bug that I had to wait for it to show up. Like, <laughs> where I had to wait five minutes for it to show up. And I didn't know that. And I kept trying to reproduce it and, like, getting frustrated. I walk away, I come back, and there's the bug sitting on my screen. <laughs> How many iterations of that did, did it take before you figured oh. out, like, oh, it takes five minutes for it to show up? I don't know. And that was, like, one of those bugs where, like, my, like a customer reported it. And all of my coworkers were like, maybe she like is wrong. And I was like, but I, I always had this um, two truths and a lie with customers. When you ask someone to describe a bug that happened, every, like they'll always give you two truths and a lie. And they don't, like they're not <laughs> lying, but they'll be like, this happened, this happened. And it was, it happens every time my son calls. And you're like, what? There's no way. <laughs> And so that's the lie. And so like, I was like, no, I like went over her story like over and over again. And I don't think that she's telling like this part is not the lie. And I also had like evidence that it had happened um, in like the logs. There was like one line and I was like, this definitely happened. So like, I don't understand. And we were like, we logged in <laughs> as like your client. She's like, no. And I was like, I don't understand how this could happen. And everyone else was like, I don't think this bug actually happened. And I was like, no, it did. I think it was probably a week and a half I spent on it. And then all of a sudden it was just on my computer. So, that would kill me. Yeah. Like I can only picture how many times I would have like sat back down, saw the bug, probably yelled a few obscenities, then like got up, walked away, <laughs> like, came back and like repeated that loop. Yeah, it was, uh, but you know, I sometimes really like problems like that where you're like, I know this happened and all I have to do is figure out the right incantation to make it happen again. Uh, and it's nice to get really tedious. It's sort of like a balance of as long as I feel like I'm solving something, I, I find them really interesting. I have such a hard time walking away from those kinds of problems because like computers are not possible. Like everything that happened like, is possible to reproduce. Like, it didn't like there's happen. a logic to it, right? Yeah. It didn't happen because the phone rang. Like something happened in this program where it's running that this thing happened. And like all of it's solvable. A lot of times like people uh, that I work with will like think like, oh, I, I mean, just like smarter than me. And like, no, I'm just like really stubborn. Really, really stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because you remind me one of my dearest friends who I have known since we were in college is probably a genius, but she would never, ever cop to it. And she does very complex things in the world of accounting. Like she's one of the like handful of people 
in the world that like create the kind of quote unquote laws of accounting. And we were having a similar conversation one time and she was like, she was again refuting the fact that I think she's a genius. And she said, it's not that I'm the smartest person. It's just that I stay with problems longer. Yeah. And I'm, I'm hearing that in what you're talking about. What do you think we can learn about sticking with problems from you? Because I guess I'm, I'm thinking about this in the context of there are people listening that I know for a fact are starting businesses. There are people listening that I know that are software engineers, right? Like, and there's a whole spectrum of other people that face big, gnarly, time-consuming, evolving, complicated problems. And it sounds like you are really comfortable, like, continually attacking with them. Like, how do you do it and what can we learn from you? Well, I think that being, like, knowing that problems aren't unsolvable. Like, there aren't unsolvable programming problems. There are hard problems. And I guess there's, if you like, if I look at the list of like things that I've never solved, they're like, it's a kind of small, but like mostly because I just like can't, I like can't sleep if I don't know what caused it. So I have to fix it. Got to get to the sleep point. So that's maybe not like super healthy, but I think that like sometimes we give up too easily because we see other people solving problems faster or we're like spend too much time comparing ourselves to other people. But like so much of the stuff that's happening in their life is in, like, again, like invisible, like, if someone looked at like my career trajectory or like where I went and where I started, they'd be like, Oh, well, uh, she must've been smarter than me or like, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it, but like, you don't see like all of the times that like people doubt themselves. They don't, you don't see the times that like they pivoted. You don't like, it looks like you can look at someone's life, you'd be like, oh, they wanted to get into programming. And when they got into programming, they were like, I want to be on the Rails core team and I want to keynote this conference and whatever. But like, that's not how it actually works. You are like, oh, I really, really love to pay the bills. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so like, I just sort of like stumbled into programming. I like to took a couple classes, really liked it. I was like, well, photography is certainly not a stable job. And stability is something that means a lot to me of just like, knowing that I can pay the bills and I, and then like everything else is like icing. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and I, I, I wanted something stable and like, I, I love photography and I like doing that on the side for fun, but I don't want it to be a job because it's so much harder to like get that stability. And, but like nobody sees me thinking that way. Right. Like, well, it's also like not the glamorous stuff. Right. Like, right. Yeah you know, it's harder to talk about. I look at like from waist deep in a career transition right now. Like, of course, I'm not really on Facebook talking about like the gnarly realities of it was really sad to close my practice last year. And knowing with all my heart that there were like some of these skills that I only knew that I like doing because I started a business, but then having to close it down. And having all those difficult conversations with clients and saying, you know, we're not going to renew or, you know, two months from now will be our last session and having to break something down that you built. And then also like, 
you know, the reality that I'm not talking about a lot, I mean, which here it is coming out in this conversation, but it's like, I haven't paid myself since like last May. It's now January. And not only have I not paid myself, I went back to school, which was quite expensive to do a boot camp at General Assembly and a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of like, it's scary, like kind of knowing where you want to go, but all the pieces haven't, you know, fallen into place perfectly. Right. And it's like, no one wants to hear those parts of the journey. Like everyone wants to like probably bring you in as a speaker. Like I, I imagine like have, has your old alma mater asked like, Hey, do you want to talk about how you pivoted from like studying art and photography to becoming a successful software engineer? Like people want to hear it when there's a nice bow on it. But to your point, yeah, the realities are quite boring and honestly make people uncomfortable in their own skin sometimes. Yeah, but it, it's it's there's like that hard stuff that like no one wants to hear about. But there's also like all of the like tedious stuff that you're like, I don't know, I didn't even think about it. I just like each time I would, each time I wanted to do something and be like, okay, I'm going to do that. And then like the next thing I wanted to do wasn't on my mind yet. Um, and I think that like a lot of times when we, and I, I see this a lot also with like code refactoring when you're trying to change something, like I was on a two-year project yeah, I had this like end result vision, but I didn't know everything I needed to do to get there. Each time you do something, you turn a knob and you're like, oh, now I've got to like do six more paths uh, before I can get back to the thing I need to work on. And so a lot of times we think that like solving (laughs) problems or life and all of that stuff is A to B, but it's actually more like a meandering path. It's like more like playing Zelda and less like playing Mario where there's a straight line. (laughs) Great analogy. Yeah, which I find infuriating about Zelda, by the way. (laughs) It's been so many years. I don't know how to, I don't know how, what's the goal here? Like, I could just wander around aimlessly for the next 20 years, and that's a totally fine way to play the game. Um, (laughs) But, and for those listening, I'm talking about new Zelda, not old Zelda. I actually never played old Zelda. Anyway, the one I like the caveat for the nerds among us. Yeah. I don't want them to be like, this Zelda was like, was a straight line. Uh, (laughs) You're obviously not a Zelda fan. You're right. I didn't play video games until the Switch came out, which I was like, the Switch, like the Nintendo Switch is so cool. I I don't, I just like that it's like portable and like you can pair anyone's remotes with it and you could just like have like like eight people playing at once. And I just think that's really cool. But anyway, like you there's that theme of collaboration that that keeps popping into this conversation. You don't have to carry around a giant, like, game console to, like, play with other people. I just, I think that's, like, you, everyone can bring their Switch, like, everyone brings their Switches to conferences, and I think that's really fun. Anyway. I'm um, such a grandma. I feel like the last, like, video game console that I actually owned was an Atari 2600, which literally puts me into, like, I don't even know if that's grandma or, like, great-grandma. <laughs> Yeah, I like I just didn't like really play video games growing up. So, but yeah. Anyway, the like I think a lot of times we think like life and like cha- like stuff we're trying to change is like a straight line and we look at like people and we're like, "Oh, like they did it." And you just never see all of the times they hit roadblocks and figure out how to get past those and all the times that they like, changed their mind about what they wanted to do. Oh, yeah. Yes. I feel like we're kind of coming to a natural kind of close 
And I feel like that is such a good point to leave off on. But I always want to turn it back over to my guests. What do you think most Levital Core Salon listeners should know or take away from our conversation today? Just that, like, as we were last talking about, like, nothing's straightforward. If you feel like you're on the wrong path, like, maybe that's true, but, like, only you know if it's not the right path and change your mind. It's totally fine. I, like, everybody, I think a lot of times when you go to college and you get a degree in something, you feel like you have to do that thing that you got a degree in. Maybe there are probably people in the world that think that, oh, I was a photo major and I don't do photography for a living, so therefore somehow I'm a failure. And I think that that's bullshit, honestly. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for calling that what it is. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. Like, just because you have a degree in teaching doesn't mean that you have to teach. Just because you have a degree in engineering, computer science, doesn't mean you have to program. Uh, you can use the skills that you learned in literally anything. And maybe sometimes we don't use our skills. I don't know. I, from photography, I learned how to do constructive criticism, something that's like really important in code reviews, how to like talk about the actual problem instead of like about the person uh, who did the work and how to make that work better and without, you know, making people feel bad about themselves. And I think like all of those are little things that you can learn. And like, just because I don't do photography for work, I still do it. <laughs> I've got a nice printer and a nice camera and I still do it for fun. And I now like, I don't have to worry about, oh, my expensive ink, like, can I afford it? Can I afford to print? It's just a fun thing that I do on the side with the money I make from doing something else. So I don't know, just go forth and <laughs> do like, do, do you do you and like, don't let other people tell you that you're wrong. Well, y'all, I wouldn't want Eileen sneaking up behind me in a dark alley, but I am certainly glad we got to connect via this podcast. She really brought some great actionable lessons. What resonated for you in this episode? I want to encourage you to share with Eileen. We know she's hanging out on Twitter over at at Eileen Codes. So it's at sign E-I-L-E-E-N-C-O-D-E-S. For any of those links or resources that we mentioned in this episode, you can find them all in the show notes over at levitalcoursalon.com. So L-E-Vital-C-O-R-P-S salon.com. I want to give a big shout out to Abe Uchatel, Eileen's husband, for generally being a super connector around the region we live in and for connecting Eileen and me. And as always, this show would not be possible without my producer, Craig Snyder, my assistant Darlene Victoria, and Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for the excellent theme song. And I know you're all busy, but don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.